You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. This morning, we are starting a spiritual pilgrimage together. And Sunday mornings, we're going to be in this spiritual pilgrimage that will lead us into one of the greatest stories ever told. It's an ancient story that continues to transform the world around us into silver and gold. Somehow, it still has the power to transform and convert uh, the, our homes into all things that are merry and bright, maybe even gaudy at times. At this time of the year, it feels like the world tries to come together, and for a second, we believe that Christmas still has the power to save us. It's amazing to think that one of the most humble and most normal everyday moments, a poor woman giving birth, has rewritten the story of the world around us for both believer and unbeliever. It's redefined our calendar. It's redefined the way we celebrate. And for a thousand years, the church has given the name Advent to the spiritual pilgrimage. There's records of the church beginning to use that language in the 300 AD era. Uh, For thousands of years, perhaps, the church has given the name Advent to our annual spiritual pilgrimage, this celebration of Jesus' birth. An advent is a Latin word. It's, it comes from adventus, which is a word that means the coming or arrival, and not just the coming of arrival of anything, right? We can't just say the rain is adventus. It, it's just speaking to a notable person or an event, a thing. As followers of Jesus, advent is an annual spiritual pilgrimage into the Christmas story, into a dry and dusty barnyard scene. It's a journey we take every year to remember to celebrate the fulfillment of God's promises, promises that he made thousands of years before. And the adventure is one that leads to the birth of Jesus, to the Messiah. And in that, we not only celebrate what was, but we begin to look for what will be someday. Advent is the time in which we celebrate the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and the arrival of God's rule, his reign, the kingdom of God. And in the Christmas story, we remember that God chooses some of the most humble people in humble places in the middle of tough moments to make a difference. The fact that God can use broken and humble people to change situations and regions in the world around us should bring hope to all of us. And for years, hope has been the first week of the Advent celebration. In the Christmas story, we remember that God chooses to work through not the powerful, not the critically acclaimed, the accomplished, and the movie stars, not those that have acquired wisdom in life, but rather just those who are willing to live simply and faithfully. The reality that God works in, with, and through us simply living and living faithfully should bring a sense of peace to all of us. In the Christmas story, remember that God's not forsaken humanity. In this time, it was a time in history where the 
feeling was held by everyone that God had become quiet and distant and was missing. They felt abandoned by God. And in that season, God speaks through in the middle of troubles and spoke hope. The fact that God never truly abandons his people in the tough situations around us should bring us joy. You know, the word for Advent is closely tied also to the word for adventure, both in, in English, both in English and in its Latin context. The root of Advent and adventure are actually not so different. And I like seeing Advent as an adventure. The Christmas story, Advent, takes us on an adventure, first through the fulfillment of God's promises from generations before, but it's a memorable journey of Be- into Bethlehem where we see a new way of living in and with God is birthed. And each chapter along the way is full of adventure. In fact, the Christmas story opens with an older couple who is invited to a younger person's journey. It then follows two younger individuals who have to step out in a faith in a way that will create tension in their social circles and in every area of life. The story also invites society's rejects, the shepherds, to know and carry the transformative message of God. It invites those from other walks of life, the magi, who are outside of a normal belief of God, into the story. From this story, faith invites us onto an adventure with Jesus. So throughout the Advent series, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the promise of hope, the promise of peace, the promise of joy, the promise of love. We're going to look first week at uh, the priest, Zechariah, and his encounter with an angel. And then we're going to look at Mary and her encounter with an angel. The third week, we're going to look at uh, Joseph and his encounter with an angel in the middle of a dream. And the fourth week, we're going to look at the angels appearing to the shepherds. Now, if you know these four passages, there's one thing that repeats in all of them. There's a reoccurring statement that arrives in all four of these stories. Does anyone know what it is? It's the words, do not fear, or do not be afraid, depending on your translation. This is going to be our spiritual pilgrimage behind all that is merry and bright and through the Advent story. And I hope what we take away from it is not to be afraid of what God is doing, that there's no reason to fear. In the Christmas story, God is doing a new thing. A profound and unprecedented historic moment. He sends the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. And this act represents a new covenant relationship with God. A new radical expression of God's divine love. He offers humanity a power and a path to redemption, to restoration, to eternal life. In the scriptures that we see whenever God's doing a new thing... It's usually happening at that moment where people are ready to give up or give in, where life has become dry and hard. So this morning, if you're in a place where your faith feels rough or dry or troubling or tense, you're in good company. The Advent story is full of people in a similar start. This Christmas story reminds us that sometimes Even when we're in a rough season, when life feels hard, God may ask some really big asks of us. When God asks us to step out in faith, it's not to be mean or abusive or vindictive or to make us feel worse or oppress us even more. However, it's in those moments that God asks us to discover him in new ways, to grow with him in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain points. 
In those tough and drying moments, God often calls his people to step out in faith in ways that can be unnerving. And that's unnerving when life is already unnerving. I've shared this before, but it's one of my favorite quotes. The founder of the Vineyard Movement, John Wimber, used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And I think that's the truth that we find throughout the scriptures. There's a sense that faith is truly a risk, but for those who are willing to take it, there's a reward. There's a greater intimacy with God. There's a deeper sense of identity, of meaning, and purpose. There's a greater sense of forgiveness, of honor. There's a greater sense of meaning and purpose for our lives and for uh, what we're part is. There's this greater sense of forgiveness, of honor, or power in God's spirit. In the Christmas story, as we move through, we're going to see that they accepted their invitation to be part of God's story, to step out in faith, even though they were gripped up in the fear of their circumstances. Years later, Paul explains faith to his followers who are in the Galatian region, and he tells them, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That is going to be a verse that we're going to see show up in this story. These characters in the Christmas story found God sustaining them in their journey, and our world, our faith has changed as a result They experienced God working in, with, and through them in new ways because they were willing to step out in risk, even when life was hard. Sometimes it's hard for us to want to step out in faith because it always costs something. It may cost us our reputation, the stuff we've amassed to this point. It may call us to move to unfamiliar places. It may cost us to step out in ways that we don't think we're built for or that we feel capable of doing. And we're going to see this and more throughout the Christmas story. But in those moments, in moments where we already feel caught up in our stuff and gripped in our condition, God asks for more. It seems like he's saying, give more, but he's actually saying, get more. He's not saying, trust more. He's saying, discover more. He's not saying, be more patient. He's saying, see how I'll sustain you. Sometimes we wonder, can God really be asking such surrender of us? And that's what all the main characters in this Christmas story will be asking. As we look back, it's easy to look at the beauty of the story. But behind the curtain of all that is merry and bright, there's some real Stepping out in faith. That's why four times in his story, an angel has to say, do not fear. At Christmas time, I like watching nostalgic films. Anybody else? There's certain films that I watch every year. You know, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Got to watch it every year. Die Hard. Got to watch it every year. Um, White Christmas featuring Bing Crosby, Cosby and Danny Kaye have to watch it every year. But one of my other favorites is a movie called It's a Wonderful Life that came out in 1946. It's a classic. In fact, I watched it with our family last night, and I think they enjoyed it for the most part. For years, Katie fell asleep in this movie, but now uh, she loves it, I think, as well. For those of you that don't know it, it follows the life of George Bailey, a compassionate man who has big dreams for life, But something happens. The Spanish flu, his brother gets hurt, 
the Great Depression, <laughs> runs on the bank, and he has to give up parts of his dreams along the way. And eventually, he's so gripped up in fear over a situation, a traumatic event that happens, that he's ready to give up in life. He no longer wants to persevere. He, he wants to give into the weariness. And that's when an angel named Clarence, it's a great angel name, by the way, intervenes, showing George the profound impact that he's had on other people's lives. And through this you know, encounter, he ends up learning to really love life and realize that God does care about him. And it's a great movie. It's a must-see. It will reorient you into focusing on what really matters. But in the beginning of the movie, there's two angels that are processing how they're going to help this guy, George Bailey. And they decide they're going to call it angel in training. I don't think there really are those. But uh, he called him into uh, being, Clarence. And they begin to tell him that he's going to go down and help this guy named George. And Clarence, the angel, receiving the assignment, says, Splendid, is he sick? And to which the senior angel says, No, worse. He's discouraged. Can you relate? Sometimes being sick is one thing. But discouragement, it settles in us in different ways, in deeper ways. I love that line. No, worse than sick. He's discouraged. Sometimes there's nothing more disheartening than the way that discouragement grips us with fear, with discontent, with weariness, with worry. And it takes the form of persistent and constant setbacks and failures that we experience in life. There's discouragement if we're in a place where we doubt our abilities and we've lost motivation. Sometimes it feels like we don't measure up to where we need to be or where everyone else is around us. And as a result, we begin to compare ourselves, and in our discontentment, we become discouraged. And all of a sudden, we don't like our spiritual state, our financial state, our physical health, our relationships, our intellectual capacity, whatever. Often in discouragement, then it feels like we settle, we give up. Like, I just give up, it's never going to happen. And when we give in to discouragement, our mindset gets clouded with discouragement. Our hopes and dreams fade away, leave left in the past, and we become apathetic. And then we enter the holidays, we're all as merry and bright, silver and gold, and we come face to face with our weariness, our discouragement, our apathy. As we read our first story this morning, ask yourself, where are you gripped by your fear and your circumstances? In Luke 1, 1 through 25, we're going to read our preface to the Christmas story. A tale of two individuals who certainly are going to be gripped up by their circumstances. A couple that has felt like everything they've always wanted was out of reach. And so they settled. They gave up weariness, discouragement, apathy moved into their life. Luke writes in Luke 1, 1 through 25, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom were first eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. With this in mind, since I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abjubah. 
His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. I love that we need a description very old in this story. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be a great sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Just so you know, the irony of that is part of the incense is pouring wine out. And so it's kind of fun that the angel is saying, you know that stuff you're touching right now? He's never going to touch it. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom and the righteousness to make a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife, I can't call her old, but she's along in years too. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you the good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day that this happens, because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he saw a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In this story, we meet two older people, Zachariah and Elizabeth. And they've become big characters in the Christmas story. But ironically, though we know some really intimate details about their life, we don't know a lot about them. They weren't among the famous people that historians and Jewish historians of their day remembered. We do know that Zechariah came from a long line of priests. And some have pointed out that a priest had to marry somebody of absolute pure Jewish lineage. And they would get extra credit if they married somebody within the family line. Someone else uh, who was a descendant of Aaron. And if you noticed, that was mentioned, that Elizabeth, too, came from Aaron. We see this dedication, then, and, and this commitment at play in the life of Zechariah. He's serious about the calling that God has put on his life. And the scriptures share that both of them were dedicated. Both were committed to the ways, to the words, to the works of God. Zechariah is responsible in this story to enter the temple to burn incense on what was called the altar of incense. And it was a small table that was designed in the Old Testament, just a couple feet big, a square, that stood outside of the Holy of Holies. And uh, it was in the tabernacle, now in the temple. 
And on the other side of the veil was the Ark of the Testimony, where the presence of God was thought and believed to actually have sit. And in Exodus, we first see when Aaron was given this command. He says, Aaron must burn incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. In fact, he must do it twice a day as a regular offering to God. And there was a certain way that God told them how to make this incense, and he was told they, he, uh, Aaron was told that no other kind of incense can ever be burned on this stuff. You can't go down to the Dollar Tree and just uh, get the stuff that's on sale. You can only use the incense that smells like this. Now, I'm not a fan of incense. I'm going to tell you that right now. When you go into the beach and you walk into boardwalk and you walk into one of the stores that has a whole incense department, I literally feel like my clothes, my, uh, whatever you call that, your diet, what is that thing in your throat called? Yeah, it's going to close up my throat. There we go. That thing uh, is going to close, right? And (coughs) his whole job was to walk in there, prepare himself spiritually for weeks ahead, okay? And to go in there and just put some incense on the table. And there was this hope when you would enter that spot, a hope that God might, the God who's on the other side of that curtain, might reveal himself in some way. Each morning of Passover, of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, these holidays were when the, the, the priest would do this. And, you know, a sacrifice was made for the whole uh, Israel, for all of Judah. There would be a burnt offering of a male lamb that had to be exactly one year old. It couldn't have any blemish on it. There were then additional offerings made of meat, of flour, of oil, and wine. And then the incense was burned before in the morning and after in the dinner to kind of uh, envelope that sacrifice with this smell, that it would become a sense of worship to God. Plus, who wants to sit around smelling that? If you've ever been downtown when Kunzler's cooking up the hot dogs, I mean, that smell is everywhere, right? So there's this practical side to it, too. There's this great symbolism. It's a sense of prayer and worship and God's presence. And, and uh, often you'll see that Jews associate certain smells with God's presence. But then there's also this reality that it kept the town smelling quite nice when they're killing lambs up in there. Now, priest. There's a lot of them. In fact, some scholars say there was probably 18,000 to 25,000 of them at this time. That's a lot of priests. That's a lot of direct descendants of Aaron. So they had to break them up into 24 sections. And priests would only serve on these holidays, which took about a whole whopping two weeks a year. Taxes were supposed to pay for those priests the rest of the year. Uh, They only worked two weeks. Sounds like a really good gig, I'm just saying. Two weeks, I'm just putting this out there, but they got paid the rest of the time. That's crazy, right? And uh, so they would only serve in these holidays, but because there was so many of them, they didn't all get to do it all the time. Some priests lived and died never getting to go into the temple. Isn't that crazy? And while I was growing up, I loved watching the Jetsons. You guys remember the Jetsons? It's a cartoon about the future. George Jetson's whole, yeah, I thought we would, our teachers promised us there would be floating cars that could take us to grandma's house by the time the year 2000 rolled around. Apparently, we didn't even know how to make computers that could handle the changeover in time, and they were promising us floating cars. Anyway, back to the story. George Jetson, his whole job, do you remember what it was? You guys remember what his whole job was? He went to a job every day, he got yelled at. He just had to push one red button. 
one time of the day. The rest of the day, he sat with his feet up. This is what the priests were like. They had one job, one job to do. They had to push a button at a certain time. And these priests, there was a thousand of them in each division easily, uh, would uh, get decided by lot who went in. 25,000 people prepared themselves, only one goes in. But for that person that goes in, William Barclay says that was the greatest day of his life. That was the day he lived and dreamed of. Well, Lot may have made the decision for Zechariah, but God knew it and used that chance kind of way to reveal himself to God. It doesn't matter if it feels like you're getting passed on in life by God or others are passing you. Because God's ways are not detoured by man, right? It was a chance, it seems, a lot that he was chosen. But God still uses that. As a hopeful and expectant, Zechariah enters the altar of incense. The rest of the priests stay outside, and they intercede for him, and they're interceding for all of Israel. That's the important part of praying for each other. Uh, But... As he gets in there, there's this expectation that he might experience a revelation of God. It's happened in the Old Testament. There are people that uh, ran into angels. There are people that ran into Satan himself. And uh, it says there that an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah. And he was startled. And he was gripped with fear. Years ago, I worked for a drug and alcohol rehab. And we worked with this lady named Mama D. And she was an an older lady. And we loved playing pranks on her because she was so easy to startle. And one day I decided, she would always use the restroom at a certain time and kind of hide. So I decided I was going to hide in that restroom up against the door. It was a single restroom. And so I, I laid up against the door with some ketchup packets that were opened. And, uh, and as she opened the door, I just fell onto those ketchup packets. And, uh, and you know, the ketchup went everywhere. And uh, Mama D just went, oh, child. <laughs> she thought I was dead. I mean, she was like breathing heavily, and uh, years later, even a few hours later when she finally came to, she said, you could have gave an old lady a heart attack. Look, I want you to know, God has the same sense of humor I do. He allows an angel to startle an old man who says he's very old inside the temple. That's messed up, right? Uh, Zachariah is gripped with fear. He's overcome by fear. Right? This story wasn't merry and bright in its telling. Take note, people always react to fear, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, when they encounter angels or fresh revelation from God. And this fear overtakes him, it grips him. It's an overwhelming sense. Even though he's hopeful that something's going to happen, he's surprised when it does. Now, Zechariah, I don't think, went in there expected that God was going to give him a baby. I think he had settled that point in his life. But what I think he was worried about was how he was going to supply for himself. In this day, there was a certain point where it was your son's responsibility to care for you. You can take note of that and tell that to your children. Um, uh, Your son or son-in-law was supposed to help care for you. Zachariah was way past that point. But he didn't have a son. He had no one to care for him. And so most scholars say he probably lived out in the country. He still ran a farmette. And, you know, that's hard for an old man to keep doing, to farm. And that's what he was doing to survive. But he's worried about how to survive financially. And I think that's the prayers the angel's answering when he says, your prayers have been heard. 
Now, the angel gives a name for his son, a vision of what he'll be like. And that happens several times in the Old Testament as well. He tells him all of the beautiful things that he's going to do. He's going to be like Elijah. And as most of us would do, Zechariah is beginning to wonder, am I losing my mind? And so, still gripped in his fear, he says, did I hear you right? I just need to know I'm not losing it. You know, they say dementia, sometimes you start to hear voices in your head. I'm kind of getting at that point, right? And he's, he's, the angel at this point then identifies himself as Gabriel. Now, Jews had this long list of angels' names that they had kept in the Midrash and other things. But there are only two angels that appear, senior angels that appear in the Old Testament. Michael and Daniel and Gabriel everywhere else. And they're considered kind of the chief angels, And so for him to identify it, we see that God's not just giving Zechariah a present. He's delivering it with his best. He's giving it surprisingly and abundantly. Now, the burning of incense took time, but it didn't take that much time. And as he's in there, people begin to worry that perhaps, you know, he didn't make it. Maybe he didn't make it going in. Maybe God has rejected. Maybe there's something the fire is not catching or something like that. Perhaps there's even some selfishness in him. Uh, a theologian by the name of Craig Heener says, if Zachariah's offering had failed, then their prayers were also in jeopardy. But he emerges, unable to share what he's said, he tries to make up sign language that isn't even there yet, knowing he looks like a crazy person, the scripture says, and he went home. Right? He didn't stay and interact with the people like the priest normally did. He went home. Elizabeth, though, understands, and she uses a statement that was common in the stories of old when God did similar miracles. God has removed my disgrace. Now, I know we're running low on time, but let me, let me share something with you. In hindsight, we look at this story and we go, man, God does some amazing things. He can give you a dream that he's always wanted. That's not the point of this story. It's easy to make that the point of this story. But I think the hope that Zechariah carries is more important. Hope is a dangerous weapon. Zachariah has hope. A few years ago when Star Wars released some new films, some of my favorite quotes on hope appeared in these movies. In the movie Rogue One, there's an actor who's facing the overwhelming state of things, and he says, rebellions are built on hope. God was beginning to write the Christmas story in this story with Zachariah and Elizabeth. It's one that's actually full of rebellion and insurrection. It's going to begin to push back on the evil that has taken place and bring restoration. And in the movie The Last Jedi, Princess Leia remarks, hope is a lot like the sun. If you only believe it when you see it, you'll never make it through the night. That's an amazing line. Zachariah and Elizabeth have made it this far because they have hope in their dark moments. And coming out of that temple, they have a new hope that will sustain them. This story communicates the power of hope that emerges in the Christmas story. But their whole life was not without struggle. It wasn't a struggle in their life because of a lack of faith or not doing enough for the Lord. They couldn't have been more. Rather, their situation was something that happened to them because God wanted to do something in and with and through that pain point. So often our pain points, the places where we carry weariness, discouragement, and apathy, is the places God wants to work in, with, and through us. They've accepted, the story says, disgrace. In fact, if you look at that word and the way she says it, she says, I've accepted. It's a personal disgrace. God didn't bring disgrace on them. 
they chose to accept their pain point as disgrace. Elizabeth had accepted disgrace or shame in her life. I asked you to think about a pain point in your life, but where have you accepted disgrace or shame in that pain point? Disgrace can lead us to feeling worthlessness, not being good enough. It'll cause us to, to pull back from people. It'll cause us to have anxiety and fatigue. In this story, and I don't know how Elizabeth responded to it, but I know that she was carrying some of those same realities. Despite their weariness, their discouragement, their disgrace, God intervenes. He does bring hope, and he reverses what they saw as a lack of honor. He brought them a sense of honor. These are the kind of people that God works through, people that have serious pain points. God is doing a new thing in his story. He's doing something God promised to do for generations, and I'm sure that this couple believed that they would be part of something like that, never thought they'd be part of something like that. But it was a big ask. God doesn't always answer our prayers that way. David says, my God, I cry out to you day and night, but you don't answer. I find no rest. Jesus himself fell on his face to the ground and prayed and said, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Sometimes, despite our faith and our faithfulness, we can find life still weary and discouraged. However, I think it's up to us to choose if we accept discouragement and disgrace or not, or a sense of hopelessness. God may never, not always answer our stories and our pains in the way that we long him to. However, I do believe he's interested in bringing honor into the pain that we carry. What might God be wanting to do through you in this season that you never saw possible? Is there discouragement in the way? In this, world, in this story, we see this miraculous, otherworldly, divine intervention. And it's not always the case. And it's easy to focus on the prayers of a barren woman who became answered in a miraculous and outrageous way. But... It's something better. It's this call to be a part of a rebellion that's built on hope and hopelessness. It's to find hope even when you don't see it. This story tells us not to accept disgrace or weariness or discouragement, and especially at the risk of losing hope. This story, as we close out, is a prelude to the Christmas story illustrates how God's transformative message can still break through weariness, dispel discouragement, and rekindle a sense of hope. And the ask, it's a beautiful one. You'll be pregnant. But it's not an easy one. Perhaps in their 80s, they were now going to raise a child. They would die before they saw that child become who he was promised to be. On top of that, he has a name and a vision a vision that will take him out of the family business. He's to be a priest. And guess what? Culturally, it's wrong to not name the first son in a certain way, and God has broken the mold by giving him the name John. Soon they're going to care for their niece who's pregnant and not married. The ask is beautiful, but it's not without hardship. This is a merry and bright story when we think, of, oh, yeah, they got to have a baby. But God's ask in the middle of a really trying time was big, and it was hard. And I would suggest that in this season, as you consider your discouragement, realize that same ask is there. God wants to enter our pain 
and work in, with, and through it.